0: Everybody. this is Craig Cottle, director of Nature Blind School for another podcast. Glad you're with us. Today, I have my good friend, Clark Pelfrey, who is a mental health nurse and has a tremendous amount of experience in the first responder communities. He's also a member of the Nature Blind School Instructor Cadre, and today I wanted to get him on to obviously discuss mental health. So here's just a few of the questions I threw out at Clark. Well, I threw out some basic things like, hey, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? We talked about the difference between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. I think it's important that we understand there's a difference. We talked about things that we can do personally to develop our mental health. Talked about what the role meditation and prayer and things of that nature play in that endeavor. And then we went into some great details about how we can help others, maybe members of our family, members of our friends, our community, whatever it might be that we can do to help people if they're suffering from mental health issues, how to read the signs, how to approach them if we need to do that. And Clark does a fantastic job of sharing that information. So here we go with Mr. Clark Pelford. Clark, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, man. It's uh, for everybody listening in, Clark and I talk about this kind of stuff on a regular basis. I seek him out for advisement and counsel on such things. And I thought, man, this is a good time to figure out a time that Clark can square away an hour or so and talk about these topics. So I'm really glad you're here, man. Really glad you're here.
1: I appreciate it. This is a, this is a passion of mine. So I'm happy to talk about it any chance I get.
0: So I guess first thing, if you don't care, tell everybody that's listening in what your background is and, and, and why it is that I'm asking you these questions.
1: Sure. So my background's a little complicated, I guess, to to where I get today. But, um, you know, I spent four years college studying exercise physiology, and we'll talk a little bit about how I think that relates to mental health. And then I spent four years in nursing school. Um, I'm board certified in psychiatric and mental health nursing, and I've been in the field for about a decade now. I've worked in emergency room settings and inpatient behavioral health settings, I've managed inpatient behavioral health settings, done community and volunteer work. So, but my, my further background goes into, I started with EMS, and so working as first responder, and then working in law enforcement, and never ever thought I would become a psych nurse just that was never in the in the cards for me and here I am and I absolutely love it and I'm glad it's the best decision I ever made
0: right well good but so what when was it that something that something clicked and said I'm going to go that direction into mental health
1: yeah, so when I started in nursing school, I was friends with uh, one of our psychiatric nurses at the hospital and I was just really curious about what did he actually do? And so we had a bunch of, you know, informal discussions about it. And I reached out to our dean in the nursing school and she was a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And so I asked her, you know, I I think I'm interested in this field. What do you recommend? How do you recommend I go about it? First advice that she gave me was don't go into it right away. Go do something else in nursing. And get a, a strong background in medical surgical nursing or emergency nursing or something of that uh, aspect. And then, if you really feel like this is your passion, then go for it. But she wanted me to have a strong medical background, and I, I think that's been very valuable for me.
0: So, so you did do that. I mean, you got a. Did you get a med surge background and then went into mental health?
1: I went in right out of nursing school. I went into the OR and I worked as a perioperative nurse. And then um, I left that and went straight into mental health after about a year and a half and been there ever since. I've done, I've done other things, other types of nursing. I've worked in the correctional environment. I've worked in emergency rooms, um, but I always find myself back at mental health.
0: So forgive me. um, So when you become a RN, you you don't have a focus like in med surge or, or mental health or, or or you do
1: you do yeah you it's it's really broad so nursing school is everything from medical surgical to pediatrics to obstetrics and gynecology to mental health um, you get a really wide variation of education and experience through clinical rotations and then everybody kind of finds their niche.
0: So, to be at the level and doing the stuff that you're doing right now on a regular basis, I'm, I'm assuming you go to regular CEUs and stuff of that nature that focus on mental health now. Absolutely.
1: Um, I worked in the field for about seven years. And then, uh, so thousands and thousands of hours of psychiatric nursing, um, lots of continuing education. And then I took uh, a board certification exam in psychiatric and mental health nursing. And so you have to have you know thousands of hours of contact, um, seventy five somewhat hours of mental health continuing education on top of all your other nursing, and then you have to pass a board examination for it.
0: Right. Okay. Well, I guess the first question I had along the lines of the topic at hand, rather than your background, is is what's the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Because I think. In my world, it's it's filtration and purification of water, right? Everybody says they're basically the same thing, and they're just right. totally different. But but even me, I don't think I really know the distinct differences between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. Would you care to clarify that for me and other people that might have that question?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so psychiatrists are medical doctors. They've gone through four years of undergraduate school. They've gone to four years of medical school, gone to three years worth of residency, and then maybe additional years in fellowship. So they, they are medical doctors, uh, first and foremost, and they specialize in psychiatry and the nervous system and the brain. And they often, you know, do medication management for people. So psychiatric medications. And they also do, you know, physical wellness. I mean, there's more today that focuses on, you know, not just medications that we're taking for a specific disorder, but making sure that the other physical needs are met and other chronic illnesses are being managed. And so they're, they're, you know, doing MRIs, they're doing CT scans, they're doing blood work, they're doing... Um, also, components of what a psychologist may do, such as therapy, um, but they're also doing that medication management. So, they're they're physicians. Now, a psychologist usually has a, a four year undergraduate degree, typically in psychology or related field, and then a master's degree at a minimum, or a PhD even in psychology. And so, their role is more based on. Doing therapy and doing psychological assessments for individuals that may have mental health disorders, that may also have emotional or behavioral disorders. They do things like IQ testing. They do things like learning disability assessments and things like that. So um, they're not medical in the sense that they don't prescribe medications.
0: That's not their that
1: background. They cannot.
0: No. They cannot do that. Okay. So any mental health medicines is going to be coming from a psychiatrist.
1: A psychiatrist or an, uh, an advanced practice registered nurse in psychiatry. And those are, you know, we're seeing more and more uh, APRNs in the field of psychiatry now um, because there's a national shortage in psychiatrists in the United States. We, we have residency programs that, have seats that don't go filled every year in psychiatry hmm, so is there's that? this big need well you know one it's a it's a specialty that not a lot of people have as much interest in when they go to medical school they want to do quote-unquote real medicine right they want to do internal medicine or surgery um, so it's hard to find um, psychiatrists even in the state of Kentucky we're short Hundreds and hundreds of of psychiatrists. So it's been nice to see these advanced practice registered nurses come in and and really fill that uh, that void, so that they can do medication management and therapy.
0: So um, you mentioned you mentioned uh, therapy and and testing and even IQ testing. I want to jump ahead a little bit here. What do you thought? What's your thoughts on Myers? Is it Myers-Biggs or Briggs? I, I might have spelled that Briggs wrong. Myers-Briggs. Okay. Myers-Briggs testing and personality assessments and stuff like that. What are your, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So um, there's there's dozens of personality tests out there. Uh, Myers-Briggs is one that's been used for, for decades. Um, you know, you may have even taken that personality test at some point. I, I remember taking it when I was in high school in the leadership program and I've taken several other personality tests uh, through work mostly. I think that they offer quite a bit of insight for people into their personality type. Um, Myers-Briggs, for example, there's a lot of emphasis on extroversion versus introversion, feeling versus thinking, uh, judgment, and those types of things. And they they mix those into four-letter acronyms like INTP might be a introverted, um,
0: you know. I'm kind of cutting you off, but, but I think this is part of what I, a lot of people are interested in, I hope. Is labeling people like that a problem?
1: <laughs> I think your personality is what your personality is. And I think it's okay doing some introspection and identifying your personality type. In fact, in a team environment, where you may be working with multiple coworkers or on a, uh, you know, an academic setting that you have some understanding of what your personality type is and what you mesh with better and that of your peers so that you can understand their perspectives and their worldviews.
0: Yeah. I remember doing one when I, when I first got out of college, we did a personality assessment. I can't even remember which one it was. It wasn't this one, but, uh, it really helped me. It it truly did help me learn how to work with some of my peers. Uh, I was at the supervisory managerial level uh, in a, in a healthcare setting. And for example, I learned something really valuable about the ER director uh, about her personality and how I needed to communicate to her. And it, it really, quite frankly, changed our working relationship entirely it, it, and for the better. But uh, at the same time, I can see how it would be easy to categorize people and then label. Now somebody's got a label stuck to them and now they can't get away from it based upon one test.
1: Again, if you're working in those settings in a group, I think it is valuable to understand where people are coming from and what their personality type is so that you can communicate effectively with them. You can present information in a way that they're, you know, able to understand and manipulate and, um, that can that can actually be very beneficial in that like group setting, so we we kind of get stuck thinking that everybody thinks like we think and we don't, so we have to kind of take a step outside and you know walk a mile in someone else's shoes, if you will, and so those assessment tools are are good for that
0: yeah, it's um yeah, sorry, I'm kind of getting on my thoughts here uh, I love these things because I get hung up thinking and and trying to grow from what you're saying. I want to make sure I ask you some more questions, though. The what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions about mental health as a field or mental health for the average person and the way it's viewed in our society or culture that you would like to, you know, specifically, is there anything out there you'd like to dispose of? I mean, is there some stuff that people need to know?
1: Sure. You're not alone. One in five Americans have some type of mental health disorder. That's a huge number. One in five. Um, And they may not all be receiving treatment for it, but it's pervasive. I would say it's even, you know, epidemic in our society. So you're not alone. And we're seeing it, I think, in media and social settings and TV and daily uh, discussions with our peers more because we're identifying it better than we had in decades past. We have more resources, more money uh, set aside for these types of programs, so we're catching it. You know, we have, we have therapists in schools now. That was never was never a thing when I was growing up, right? But you know, when you're talking about about Half of the mental health disorders show their first signs in before the age of fourteen, so it's it's huge to have those therapists in the school and identifying uh people and just seeing what their needs are and how they can help meet them. I'd say too you know less than twenty percent of kids and adolescents receive the treatment that they need, so I think we're having more discussions, yeah. I think we're having more discussions about mental health because we're paying more attention to it.
0: Did you ever know my buddy, Mike Stapleton? We may have trained in Aikido together. Do you know him by chance? He was a school psychologist is the reason I'm asking.
1: No, the name sounds familiar, but no, I don't know.
0: Yeah, we we trained in Aikido at the same time, probably just different locations back in the day. He's a school psychologist. He he really uh, helped me a lot with understanding, And, and he was a school psychologist in middle school, which is a very important age. Absolutely. About seeing some of these trends, and this was, heck, man, that was 20 years ago. It's really interesting that they implemented psychologists in the school system, which I think is a good thing. Yeah.
1: And social workers, social workers in the school system to help connect the dots between the educational environment, psychosocial needs that aren't being met at home, and resources available in the community. Social workers are absolutely invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. The other thing I would say, especially talking about media and how mental health is being portrayed in the media, it's very sensationalized. Media tends to portray different disorders in a in a not glamorous way, sensationalized for sure, and again, when we talk about the rates of mental health disorders in the population um, you you know someone, I know someone. Everybody knows someone that's struggling with some mental health issues, but they're not people that are on the media, right? So, especially when we look at perpetrators of violence, there's a a common misconception that people with mental illness are inherently dangerous. And statistically, that is just not true. We've studied it. You're more likely to be a victim of violence than a perpetrator of violence if you have mental illness.
0: Oh, Wow. Hmm, that's an interesting statistic. Yeah, and then st-
1: stigma of mental health is another huge, huge area, and and that, and that gets portrayed in a, in society, and uh, I don't think a very flattering way. But it's one of the most challenging aspects of living with a mental health condition is dealing with the stigma that's associated with it. Oh, you see a therapist. Oh, you see a psychiatrist. Oh, you take medication. Well, no different than having irritable bowel syndrome or diabetes or high cholesterol. Well, of course, you're going to see a doctor for those things. Of course, you're going to manage your chronic conditions. Of course, you may take medication for it. there. There genuinely is no difference between health and mental health. Mental health is just a part of health, health <laughs> in general. Right. Absolutely. And so that stigma can cause people to feel ashamed for something that's outside of their control. And it oftentimes prevents them from seeking the the help that they need. And that's why I'm happy to be on here today talking to you about it.
0: Yeah. And I'm happy to have you on it. It's one of those things that I have to admit, you know, for a long time and I'm not saying that I've been this way for, I have not been this way for a long time, but, but for years, you know, I was of the same mindset that, that there's something just i mean it's it's it was a different wrong than somebody who had a broken arm or you know heart condition or something and it was suck you know i come from a farming background stubborn male dominated family um suck it up buttercup and and i'm glad i did that i'm mean, glad i was given that opportunity to learn how to deal with stress but i also wasn't given tools to deal with stress right in a healthy way it was just get her done <laughs> and that's why most of the coddle men have died of heart attacks. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> and I see this, I see what me and you're talking about as being a vehicle to, to get a lot of people that are having health conditions brought on by heaping amounts of stress that they're not dealing with.
1: Oh, it's huge. Um, I was reading a study in preparation for, for us talking today, and one third of Americans, which is a threefold rise in pre-pandemic levels you think we're an anxious world because we are an anxious world right we don't know how to deal with the the stresses in our everyday lives in an appropriate way so you know oftentimes that's why you see people that are turning to to other mechanisms to deal with that stress and anxiety to turn into you know drugs alcohol other things um and Unfortunately, in mental health, there is a strong correlation between substance use disorders and, and some mental health disorders. But if you're not getting the appropriate treatment, you're seeking relief. You may seek that relief through any means available to you. Right. But it just does much damage over time.
0: So I think one of the things that people see, and you mentioned Hollywood TV and what have you, is this idea of the person sitting back on a couch and the therapist with their legs crossed and a notebook yeah. and drilling them with questions is is what's the misconception there how does therapy work if somebody is listening to us and they think you know I'm recognizing some things about myself and I might seek out therapy what what does that look like a therapy session We'll be back after a quick break Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part, it's nearly half the price of a comparable Jetboil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same.
1: I think we do have some weird uh, examples out there in the media of, like you said, laying on the couch and talking to someone, um, or you know, tell me about your mom, tell me about your dad, um, and 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 those are maybe appropriate questions, um, but typically not the leading questions in therapy, right? So, do you have to be sick? Do you have to be disturbed? Diagnosed with mental illness to see a therapist? Absolutely not. Um, I kind of think of therapy like a multivitamin. They're just, good, they're just good to take. And there doesn't have to be anything huge going on to seek out a therapist. The great thing about therapists is that they are a close stranger. They're not someone that's in your circle of of influence or people, but they're a close stranger. They're someone that you can go to with a problem, whatever problem that may be, behavioral issue, financial issue, interpersonal relationship issue, a lack of motivation, or or a goal that you want to reach that you don't know how to reach, and you can go to this person who cannot disclose anything that you say to them by law that is a safe place that you can kind of unload and unpack your life stress and get some help navigating it. It's not advice that therapists give, right? It's the questions that they ask and that you have to wrestle with. But going to a therapist is just been, it's been beneficial in my life personally, right? It's been beneficial in, in many, many, many patients that I've seen over the course of my clinical career. But again, it's not something that you have to be down, depressed, can't eat, can't sleep, can't get out of the chair to go and see. You know, it's better to go before you get to that space. But even just wanting to to improve your, your parenting skills or your stress management or developing some mental resiliency, those are all reasons to go see a therapist. But they're for sure there as well to help you deal with the intense stuff you know those deep dark feelings that you're having um, those chronic mental health issues that you may deal with and they're just great people as a sounding board that you can echo off of that aren't going to point you to a direction they're going to ask you questions and help you Come to some realizations on your own, and then, kind of like a, a captain on a ship, they're just there to help you steer it.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So the the topic of post traumatic stress is one that I really wanted to ask you about too, because we so many of our listeners are military, uh, or first responders, and and people that appreciate that those type of workers. Uh, what what are your thoughts on this idea of post traumatic stress versus post-traumatic stress disorder. It it seems like the people that I work with, because I get to work with a lot of people that have admitted straight up, Hey, I'm having issues with post-traumatic stress. And the people that are telling me how to work with them are saying, it's not a disorder. It's just, it's just stress. Am I, am I looking at that properly?
1: I think so. I think the, the, the terminology has taken a recent change. From calling it post-traumatic stress disorder, which um, is listed in the in the DSM five, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual for Psychiatry and Psychology. Um, but I think one thing about that particular set of symptoms is that it isn't something that grows organically. It's something that happened to you. It's an injury, if you will. Um, it's a set of symptoms that come along after exposure to a traumatic experience or event, and we first started labeling it post-traumatic stress disorder back in the '80s. Um, especially um, seeing veterans for sure, we, we see a lot of discussion about that. But it's not only veterans that suffer from, from PTSD. Um, you know, victims of violence, rape um, certainly deal with those things. People that have experienced childhood abuse or domestic violence can have all had traumatic experience. It could be could be anything, but it's not in terms of vocabulary, right? It's not like a disorder like we think. It is more of an injury. What caused it? And, and how can we work through that experience so that we don't have symptoms of hallucination, and flashbacks? And, anxiety and panic disorder. So there's there's a really great amount of research that's come out in the last 20 years Some great new types of, uh, of, of therapy that have evolved. And I think anyone that's suffering from, from PTS needs to know that there are resources out there and they're available and that seeking treatment is absolutely okay.
0: Well, that's what I wanted to get into next was what kind of things your average person is listening in. What kind of things can they, what kind of things can I do on a daily basis to help our mental? I don't want to pretend I'm just talking to other people because I'm listening because I'm learning here on what I can do too. Uh, What kind of things can we be doing on a daily basis to help our mental health?
1: I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to give you some terrible answers Hmm. that I think you've heard before from doctors that have told you about it for other things. And you're going to roll your eyes at me at a couple of them, but they're true. Okay. Exercise, yeah, you know that was my initial background was exercise physiology.
0: The okay, tell me, okay, I've heard this a million times, and I, I'm down for that, and I, and I agree because I've I have finally got in a habit of exercise, and when I don't do it, I miss it. Even and I recognize how beneficial it is to my mental health, but what's happening there? Yeah, so
1: in our brain, we have all these neurotransmitters out there for all kinds of things, and just like medication, but our brain can create those chemicals, those neurotransmitters, and release them and make us feel good, often like some medications do. So things like catecholamines or serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, you know, the feel-good neurotransmitter, endorphins, those are all released and become more abundant in our brain and throughout our body. We have receptor sites for those throughout our body. And so they actually make us feel better. So when your doctor says, oh, you need to start walking, you need to start walking, even if it's just walking. You know, it's not running a 5K or a marathon, but doing some simple exercise can absolutely improve your mental health. It helps reduce stress, anxiety, worry, depressive symptoms. I mean, it's not a panacea. It's not the cure-all for everything, but it's one step that you can take breath work too. Um, This is something that I've been experimenting with recently with a with a group therapist here in town honestly Um, and we meet twice a week and we do breath work, intentional breath work, intentional breathing, uh, deep belly breathing uh, that we use some guided imagery with and you know those sessions last 10 to 20 minutes twice a week. I've seen Amazing results in my own life anecdotal my own life and doing some intentional breathing exercise
0: hey have you have you read this book breathe by chance I have not it is on oh, my, my list gosh dude yeah, yeah I'll, for everybody listening I'll link it in the description. I'm gonna write note right now, so don't forget uh Sam Bulig, another part of our cadres, recommended it to me a long time ago, and I'm telling you man it's it's fantastic. It's not, it's not a guidebook on how to breathe. There's other sources for that, but man, if you read that book and you don't realize you need to be doing breath work, you will by the end of that book. Yeah, I mean, just from a physical I'm just literal physical standpoint and how things have changed throughout us as a species and why we don't breathe well right now and why it's causing a lot of, it's just a fantastic man. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm getting off subject. No, I think that's great. So does this breathing practice, um, because it it sounds like you're getting into meditation sort of thing. Is it breathing just a physical manifestation of something? Is meditation, prayer, things like that, how do they those types of activities play into our mental health?
1: Yeah, I think they they all kind of um, come together, right? Um, you know, intentional breathing helps you in your physiological responses. It helps lower your heart rate, it helps decrease your blood pressure, it helps increase perfusion to the tissues across your body. Um, it can also be, in a, like we do, in kind of a, a guided manner so that you can have auditory or, or visual focuses to help you meditate, to help calm your mind down and slow down a little bit, to be present in the moment. And I think with a lot of people that I see, we get so wrapped up in our day-to-day. We get wrapped up in the next thing to do that we rarely sit still and appreciate the moment that we're in and value that. And that can, that can really change your mindset. Um, spiritual connections, whatever you may believe in, have, have shown to improve health. They've shown in studies in patients in the hospital that have had intentional prayer and not, and people, you know, healing faster. I'm not saying that is like miracle work. I'm saying that as, you know, mindset, spiritual connection is an ancestral integrated thing in in all of us, you know. So connecting with that has positive benefits, we've seen. And then Sleep hygiene is something everyone can do better.
0: What do you mean by sleep hygiene? I don't think I've ever heard that together. Sure. So Other sleep than just being clean when you go to bed, is that what you're, you're not talking about? <laughs> no, <that>?
1: no. <laughs> no, I take a shower in the morning or at night. I don't care. <laughs> um, sleep hygiene. So having a, a set sleeping schedule and I don't want to put hours on sleep because it really does very individual to individual. Like, I'm a nine hours of sleep guy. I know from my experience with my own mental health and my, you know, chronic illnesses that I need nine hours of sleep because otherwise I'm a grumpy, grumpy bear. You you may be able to get away with seven hours of sleep. But somewhere in there, seven to nine hours is a sweet spot for most people. And they need to be getting that every single night a variation of one hour throughout a week can even cause changes in your sleep pattern and you you can catch up on sleep through naps, but you can only catch up on so much sleep through naps. so having good sleep hygiene going to bed at the same time every night getting up at the same time every day whatever that time may be for you but we see that when people go to bed later, they have poorer quality of sleep. So getting to bed, you know, in a reasonable hour and getting up at a reasonable hour is kind of ideal and doing that every single day, making sure that the room is dark, right? Things like melatonin are secreted to help us get to sleep. And that gets slowed down. The production gets slowed down when we, we're staring at a phone five minutes until we go to bed or we're watching TV where well, we've got the lamps on. So creating that kind of darker environment one to two hours before we go to bed each night and putting that phone away, which I'm guilty of doing too. You know, it's like the last thing I do before bed is like, oh, I gotta check I gotta check Facebook real quick. You know, and that's that's not great. But turning those devices off, those down a little bit and getting some good quality sleep Lowering the temperature of your room when you can sleep helps you sleep better. Um, some of the recommendations out there are like 65 degrees, which, you know, in the middle of the summer and energy consumption, that might not be achievable for everybody. But you do sleep better in cooler temperature. Your, your, your body regulates temperature as you sleep. And so you fall asleep better when it's cooler. And then your body slowly warms up in the morning. And wake you up.
0: Because of who we are, Nature Reliance School, that is, what role does being outdoors play in mental health?
1: So well, I think anybody who spent any time outdoors will have their own anecdotal experiences with it, right? But I'll speak to my own and then I'll speak to a little bit of what science says. For my own mental health, um, nature provides me some rest and relaxation, it helps improve my sleep because. When the sun goes down, the moon comes up, arch ready to go to bed. And then when the sun comes up, I get woke up. And in one or two days, my sleep schedule is back on track. There's also a science out there that that tells us that spending time in nature can act as a as a balm for for busy brains. And I love that analogy: a balm for busy brains. So, like you would rub Vaseline on your hands where they're cracked and chapped. Spending time outdoors can help improve cognitive benefits. It can uh, help improve attention. There were some studies done in schools where schools that had uh, green spaces available to them versus schools that were in, you know, busy inner city with limited green spaces had more issues with inattention than those with green spaces. Getting out in nature um, really does, I think, just has that. It taps into our ancestral side as well. Feeling the grass under your feet, feeling the wind in your hair, listening to nature, listening to tree frogs at night, sitting around a campfire. I mean, that's when I feel the best, don't
0: you? Yeah, I mean, but I've made a living of it, so yeah. And part of the reason is because I feel so good in the outdoors. That's right. Um, but it's, but I, I just. I don't want it to be something where we're trying to get people in nature reliance school. I just want to get people outside because it's obvious. It's the science is there to back it up. I agree. All right. So we've talked about what we can do for ourselves. Um, I think one of the most important things that I wanted to get to is when we recognize that there's warning signs with family and friends, A, a lot of us don't know what those warning signs are. What kind of things should we be looking out to help people that are close to us?
1: When we start to feel like our family or friends maybe have some depression, for example, it's very common, um, where there's lack of attention, where they're not doing those basic activities of daily living, you know, brushing our teeth, taking a shower, putting on clean clothes, or um, missing work, or missing school, um, our Emotions may be a little bit more labile, up and down. Um, I think the best sorry. thing to do is
0: to have... Sorry. What's that word labile mean? I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> so up and down, varying.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Go ahead.
1: When we start to see those in our friends or family or even in ourselves, I think the best thing to do is just to have a empathetic but straightforward discussion about it. And focus that conversation on what you have seen. So Craig, I have noticed that lately you, you know, have been missing quite a bit of work and the house is getting getting a little messy. Is every, is everything going okay? Are you are you doing okay emotionally? Can we can we talk about that? And inviting that conversation in instead of saying, "You look really depressed," (laughs) that puts us on the defensive automatically. So having an open conversation about it is is by far, I think, not the most comfortable thing to do if you've never done it. But people that are going through a lot of distress, oftentimes they want somebody to notice because. They're insecure about bringing it up themselves. So when someone does pay attention to it and invites them into a conversation about it, that can actually cause a lot of just relief right there. Hey, you know, I am struggling. You know, I'm not feeling on top of my game. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know where to go. And that's where, you know, we need to refer to those mental health professionals. Therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist. The majority of the time though, people can start with their own primary care doctor. And that's where the majority of mental health care begins in America is with our, our family doctor. Because they're more accessible. Let's be honest. They're more accessible. And then there's, there's less stigma associated with going to the doctor and getting a checkup than there is with going to see a psychiatrist and having to sit in that waiting room.
0: So on the opposite side of that, what are some things that we should avoid, some things that we should never do when we're trying to approach somebody about us re- seeing or considering that, hey, my spouse has some mental health issues. What what kind of things do we never do?
1: We don't want to diagnose. That's not a, That's not a role of a friend or a family member. Hey, I think you have depression. I think you have anxiety. I think you have. Bipolar disorder, because I saw on an episode of House. Um, so we're not there to diagnose. We're there to offer empathy and our time and our ear to listen, and then offer support in getting some help if that if that's something that they want to do. Now the exception to this rule is. When someone tells you that they're having, or you suspect they may be having suicidal thoughts. And that is, you know, really, if you've never had a discussion with someone or never had to ask the question about to someone if they're feeling suicidal, you know, that's a really uncomfortable conversation to have, to be totally honest. But suicide rates are through the roof in the United States. A person dies of suicide every 11 minutes. In 2020, there were 45,979 deaths due to suicide, and 1.2 million suicide attempts. So if you think that someone may be having suicidal thoughts, you've got to ask the direct question. Are you having thoughts about wanting to kill yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? Because it is really hard for a person that's in a deep, dark place to just come out and say that to someone. So we do have to be direct in that conversation. And if they say yes, that's an emergency. That's an emergency. But we need professional help. That's where we're, we're on the phone. We're calling our doctor. And maybe even that we have to go you know, to an emergency room. Or I would encourage you, everybody, to write down the Nine eight eight number, which is as of uh, July sixteenth, the new nine one one for mental health, if you will, and it's nine eight eight, and it'll connect you to local or regional resources for mental health. And if those aren't available in your area, it connects you to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. And those are trained professionals on the other end of the phone that know how to take the conversation from you, and and you can hand that off. And they can help you find resources. They can help you determine, is, you know, is this an emergency today? Do we need to go seek emergency help right now? There's even mobile crisis units uh, that, you know, instead of calling 911 like we did before 988 came out, now you call 988 and we have trained therapists and psychologists and, you know, maybe even mental health practitioners that can come to your door. And help you get that emergency treatment that you need dang so that's huge. huge and
0: how widespread we, we is have that?
1: that here. well we have it here in our town in owensboro um, wow. our community mental health agency has a mobile crisis unit um, they've been piloted for years across the nation partnering with law enforcement and now it's becoming much more widespread so trying to take law enforcement one taking the the burden of those types of calls off law enforcement and two realizing that they're not the most appropriate resource in that situation. And we want to put the most appropriate resource there on the ground. And that's, that's mental health
0: providers. Yeah. All right. So, um, awkward question at best, I guess that's a good way of describing it, but, but I think it's worthy of our discussion. It seems like in modern society that there's, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is the right way to, say it Clark but people that are that are have a victim mentality and how do we help people like that that ev- they are a victim of everything um I'm, I'm trying to be as nice as I can be I understand because it, 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 it's an awkward conversation because I think most people see that this is an issue today where you know everything hurts your feelings and and the sticks and stones may break your bones thing. It's just, it's so far gone. I mean, that's just not, a, everything's going to hurt you. Uh, I've heard people say they're being victimized by words and stuff of that nature. How do we, how do we navigate those waters in today's society? Well, tough question. One, I know, And I, but I'm, yeah, I'm glad is. you're here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it is a tough question. One, I think we have to, we have to meet people where they're at. So I don't think we can dismiss everyone because we think they may be faking. We have to meet people where they're at. And if they're telling you that, you know, they're feeling anxious, they're feeling depressed, they're feeling uh, called out. I think we have to meet them where they're at because we don't know what's really going on in their lives, in their home, in their job, in their profession. And we don't know why they, they may be taking that out on us. So a little bit of forgiveness there, a little bit of empathy. And two, you you don't have to surround yourself by people that are always the victim. Those might not be healthy relationships for you to be in. Um, I think it's okay to have boundaries and limitations on the type of people that we you know allow in our circle. So if it's someone that's constantly causing a, offense or feels like they're being offended all the time, that's more honestly their issue than yours. I think we have to be respectful human beings and meet people where they're at. But those might not be, you know, the best relationships for us to engage in all the time. Um, but it's a stressful world out there, Craig, and there's a lot of uncertainty. There's rising prices, there's wars that have gone on for years, there's a lot of stuff and we don't, we don't really know what's going on behind the doors in people's homes. Um, And maybe we need to be asking the questions of, you know, what, what happened to you that you react this way? What happened to you? Not why are you this way? What happened? And that might open the door to have a conversation about, well, you know, this is all the stuff that, that's going on in my life. But you do not know about Developing mental resiliency is an individual job. But so if you want to learn how to be more mentally resilient, you have to put the time and effort into developing that. It's a skill, you know, learning how to get comfortable in the uncomfortable, as you talk about. That helps you develop mental resiliency. So you've got to invest time in
0: that. Well, man, this has been great. What uh, what have I missed? I tried to put some good questions to you. What, what have I missed? What, what can we talk about mental health that people need to hear?
1: Um, I just want everybody to hear that, one, it's okay not to be okay. It's perfectly fine if you're not okay. And there are resources out there. They're available. Um, 988 is available if you have a mental health emergency. I think everybody needs to store that number in their phone, and, you know, be able to give that to a friend. I think it's great. Now, we don't have to remember a big 800 number, and 988 is just available. You can use it, and um, I think we need to be aware of our own biases towards mental health, and not be so quick to judge other people. You know, there there is a lot of stigma associated with mental health, and I think we have to be aware of that, and it's really hard to deal with a mental health condition and deal with stigma from, from, from you and me. So that's something that we can do better.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation, my friend. I appreciate you very much and your time.
1: Yes, sir. I appreciate so, you having me on.
0: Everybody listening in, anything that we mentioned that uh, is a link, then we'll make sure that I add it to the description and you can find that in the description below. Um, and I'll have a link down there just as a reminder for 988 and the suicide hotline is, and all the stuff that goes along with it. So man, great conversation, Clark. Really appreciate your brother. Thanks, Craig. Well, everybody, this has been Craig Cottle with the Nature Reliance School talking about mental health. We dug into a little bit as it relates to being in the outdoors. Hope you enjoyed it. And as always, if you find this podcast to be useful to you i'm sure somebody else will as well so pass it on to them as always come on join in let's learn together and that wraps up another fantastic episode of the nature blinds podcast i hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blind School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free.